Our sermon text this morning is uh, once again in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 7. And this morning we will be uh, looking at and uh, going through verses 12 to 20. Again, Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 to 20. This is God's word. Listen carefully to it. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we ask, O Lord, for the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit this morning. We know, O Lord, that no understanding of your word comes to us apart from your spirit. We pray that you would guide us, Lord, that we pray that you would teach us, that you would enable us, Lord, to hear the commands of Scripture and enable us, Lord, to know that we can only obey your commands when we have been given your grace, when our lives have been transformed by the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is moving into the final section of his Sermon on the Mount. He is reaching the end, and so he's beginning to draw some conclusions based on what he has said earlier uh, in this sermon. And again, we recognize that uh, Jesus began this sermon in chapter 5 of this gospel. And we began looking at the Sermon on the Mount back in February. And so we've spent a considerable amount of time working through uh, the sermon well, Jesus makes concluding statements here. He begins these con concluding remarks. And next week we will uh, finish looking at the concluding remarks of the Sermon on the Mount. And so in verse 12, we see that he summarizes the ethical teachings that he has been giving back in chapter 5. And then in verse 13 through the end of chapter 7, he continues to clarify what he means by seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness. He tells us how we may do this. Well, in these verses, Jesus is telling us something that we should already know. All of you who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, you should be aware of the fact of what Jesus is telling us here, which is that the life of a Christian is not an easy life. The life of a Christian is a difficult life. It is challenging. It is fraught with trouble. Our lives are made inherently difficult by the fact that we have professed faith in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is telling his followers, he is telling us that walking after him is not easy. And it will not be easy. You see, he's commanding sinful and selfish people to do to others what we would have others do to us. This is not something that comes naturally to us. We think the world revolves around us. And Jesus here is saying to look to other people and to their needs. If you can't figure out what they need, simply do to them what you would have them do to you. Well, then he commands us to enter the kingdom through the narrow gate. But he goes on to say that this narrow gate and this narrow path are difficult. They are hard to follow. It is not an easy life to walk this path. And then we see that Jesus also commands us to look out for false prophets. He is aware and he wants to warn us as a good shepherd warns his flock that there will be those who will seek to lead us astray, to draw us from the true path, to take us off of that narrow path that, which leads to everlasting life and put us back on the path which leads to destruction. And so we see that Jesus is not interested in conducting a bait and switch here. He is not interested in selling us on something this idealized version of what the Christian life is like, and then all of a sudden switching it up on us at the last minute or after we've committed, after we've signed on the dotted line, and exposed to us the realities that it really is a hard life. He's telling us up front, this is what you will face as a believer. And if anyone tells you otherwise, if anyone tells you that the Christian walk, the Christian life is a cakewalk, if anyone tells you that by professing faith in Christ you will receive all manner of earthly reward, they are lying to you. Jesus wants to give us full disclosure up front, and he wants us to know what we're getting into when we follow him. And because he has been up front with us, because he has given us this, these warnings, and we see this throughout the pages of Scripture, when the storms of life hit us, we should not be blindsided. We've already been given the forecast for what we will face. We should not be caught off guard. He warns us to protect us. He warns us like a shepherd. And he shields us from the storms of life. Jesus, as our catechism says, is our ruler and he is our defender. And he will protect us from all of our enemies. And so I would ask you as we consider these verses to, uh, to think, on, uh, think on this thought, that life as a Christian is difficult. But we are able to follow Jesus Christ, not on our own strength, but because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Life as a Christian is difficult. But we are able to follow Jesus, not on our own strength. We have no strength of our own. We can only follow him because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross what he has done through his resurrection, what he has given to us in his Holy Spirit. Jesus faithfully leads us, and we are called and commanded to follow where he goes. Well, I've divided this passage into three sections. The first is verse 12, summing up. Uh, verse 12, he sums up the ethical teaching. The section two is two gates, verses 13 to 14. And then section three, false prophets, verses 15 to 20. Again, summing up, verse 12, two gates, verses 13 to 14, and false prophets, verses 15 to 20. So let's first look at verse 12. The Sermon on the Mount is filled with many memorable verses. There are many verses that, that as you catalog, as you go through in your mind, verses that you know from Scripture, you could trace them back to this sermon. 
But this is perhaps one of the best known. It is the golden rule. And Jesus says here in verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This sums up the law and the prophets, Jesus says. It, it sums up the entirety of the Old Testament. That's what he means by the law and the prophets. He's using that term generically to mean everything that has preceded him. Everything that, has, that precedes the New Testament. Now just a, an interesting fact here, a tidbit of information. The most widely quoted version of this verse, at least in America, is do unto others as you, have, as you would have them do unto you. We all know this one by heart. But this is not strictly a Bible translation. This comes from, it's a phrasing of the golden rule found in a Catholic catechism published in England in somewhere at time around 1583. Now there are many variations to the golden rule. You can find a form or a variation of the golden rule in many different religions. And this will be pointed out to you by people who do not believe as you believe. And they will tell you this to try to undermine your faith and to say, well, Christianity just isn't as unique as you would like to think that it is. But the vast majority of these variations of this golden rule are negatively stated. And one uh, example of this is uh, from a book in the Old Testament, Apocrypha, which says, do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate. This is representative of many of the other ways the golden rule is stated. Now, there are some exceptions to this, but generally speaking, it is stated negatively. But Jesus takes this idea, he takes an idea that was there before he walked on the earth, and he, he states it positively. He states it as a positive command. It is not enough simply to avoid doing to others what you would not want done to you. Jesus commands us. He commends to us the doing of good to other people. And when he says this, he's stating this positively. He means that we are to be on the lookout to do good to other people. It's not enough just to avoid doing harm. He commands us to do good. And what is implied here is that we need to have a knowledge of what is good, isn't it? We need to have a knowledge of what is good. There, uh, what is implied here is a knowledge that we trust, that we know the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the source of all that is good. Now, Jesus' teaching in verse 12 uh, goes hand in hand with what he teaches in Matthew chapter 19, verse 19, where he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two teachings go together very, very well. And by this verse, we're reminded that there is a, a, a biblical love of self that is proper. We are to preserve our lives. Self-preservation is a form of, of loving ourselves. But this can be taken too far, can't it? We're commanded to preserve the life of other people. And we preserve our lives and the lives of others by uh, seeking out food and clothing and shelter for ourselves. These are basic necessities, covering those necessities. And we've already been told in Scripture that God himself is the one who ultimately provides these things for us. But it is clear, when we look in our own hearts, we look at the world around us, that this proper, this biblical understanding of a, of a love for self, it can be warped. It can be warped into selfishness and self-centeredness. Our sinfulness causes us to focus only on ourselves. We disregard every other person. We're not able to see what they need. We're not able to care for them. We think only of what we want. 
But Jesus here turns our selfishness on its head. He commands us to take our inward focus and turn it outward to other people. And he says that we are uh, to do this by doing unto others. Doing unto others. Well, Jesus commands us elsewhere to deny ourselves. He tells us to take up our cross and follow him. And in reality, doing for others what you wish that they would do for you is an act of self-denial. It's an act of looking to other people and ignoring your own perceived wants or needs. It means that rather than dwelling on what you wish somebody else would do for you, you dwell on what you can do for others. And if we look at the true implications of what Jesus means here, if we look at what he's really saying, it means that where we realize that apart from Christ, this is yet another command that we cannot keep. Why is that? Because in our sinfulness, in this natural state of sin in which we, we all find ourselves by birth, we are incapable of keeping the least of the commands that Jesus gives to us. Even when we do good, quote-unquote good, our motives are impure. We're looking for some sort of reward. We're looking for some sort of, uh, of reciprocation. We want somebody to return the favor when we do good. But this is why Jesus died on the cross. This is why he rose from the dead. And the same power which brought Jesus back to life resurrects our hearts from the dead. And this takes place only for those who place your faith in Jesus Christ, who repent of your sins. This is the promise of Scripture. Your, your heart will be made uh, into a heart of flesh from a heart of stone. That which was formerly dead is now alive in Christ Jesus. In dying on the cross, Jesus Christ put others before himself. He considered the salvation of his own people to be of far greater importance than his own comfort. And so he endured immeasurable pain, torment, anguish on the cross. He endured the scorn of the very people whom, whom he had created. And he submitted to the pain of death, all so that you and I and sinners like us could be free and able to do to others as we would have done to ourselves. This is what Jesus came to do. Well, let's turn now and look at verses 13 and 14. Two gates. Jesus has just summed up the law and the prophets. He has said, if you do unto others as, as you would have done to yourself, you will fulfill the law and the prophets. All of the commands of the Old Testament. And now he gives a series of exhortations as he finishes up this sermon. In verses 13 and 14, he contrasts two gates which lead to two different paths. Verse 13 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. Now once again, as Jesus has done at various points throughout this sermon, he is talking about gaining access to the kingdom. He's talking about getting into the kingdom of God. And what does he say? The gate to the kingdom is narrow. The gate to destruction is wide. It is easy. <laughs> But the gate to the kingdom is very small. And once you get into the when you, once you get through the gate and you're on the path, the path is difficult. 
Now, this is a far cry from what is commonly believed today, that all paths lead to God, or that all religions provide a way to heaven. And you hear this on a regular basis. Jesus here is saying that there are only two paths. There are only two paths, two options. And there is only one choice that you can make. These two paths lead to two completely different destinations. They do not put you in the same place at the end. First, there is the wide gate. The wide gate leads to the easy path. And this is our default mode. This is where you are by birth, by by nature of being born as a human being on this earth. You are on the wide path. You have entered the wide gate. Everybody is on this path. And so it is very easy just to go with the flow. You don't want to go against the grain. You don't want to turn and go in a different direction when everybody's headed in one direction. But the problem is that this way, Jesus says, leads to destruction. So the wide path, the easy path, leads to destruction. But there's another gate, and there's another path. Jesus says in verse 14, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There's a wide gate that leads to destruction. You're on it by birth. And there's a narrow gate that leads to life. Jesus does not present us with a multitude of options here, does he? Two options. And he says there's one choice that you must make. It is either one or the other, either the wide gate or the narrow gate. Well, this is exclusive language. Jesus has done this before. He will do it again. And people don't like it. But this is the language that Jesus used. Well, the fact is that unbelievers, they do want to like Jesus. They want to, they want to like him. They want to sort of claim him as their own. And they point to teachings like the golden rule and they say, what a great teacher Jesus was. But you don't have to believe that he's a savior. He's a great teacher. And they'll say things like, I like Jesus, but I can't stand his followers. Now to be sure, we have done, as Jesus' followers, we have done great damage to the name of Christ uh, because of the sin that we commit. When we openly sin, when there is scandal within the church, dishonor is is done to Jesus' name. But the fact remains that Jesus was divisive. He was offensive. And he challenged people. People do not like it when they hear that there are two roads. And that one of those roads leads to hell, and the other road leads to eternal life. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage. And in reality, this is no different than what had already been stated in Scripture. We read earlier from Psalm 118, verses 19 to 20 to be specific. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter it. This is nothing different than what has already been taught in the pages of Scripture. There is one gate through which the righteous may enter. And what is clearly implied in Psalm 118 is that there is another gate through which everyone else will go. And that gate leads to destruction. Well, in John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Is it possible to think of a more exclusive statement than this? Jesus himself 
is the narrow gate. Jesus himself is the doorway. Jesus is the path, the difficult path, that leads to everlasting life. And we come to the Father, we come to everlasting life by believing in his only begotten Son. That's the only way. But Jesus warns us that this path is difficult. He says the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You are not a target of the enemy when you are on his side. But when you switch teams, when you become a member of, of, of God's army, when you become a Christian, you are fighting for the other side. You have been marked. You have a big target on your back. You are now going against the flow of humanity. And life will be difficult for you in ways that you have not experienced before. But not only is Jesus the path which takes you to your Father in heaven, he is also the shepherd of your souls. Not only does Jesus allow you uh, to make your conveyance upon him to his Father in heaven, but he also shepherds us along. He is our, our front guard. He is our rear guard. He hems us in on, on either side. He protects us. The journey is difficult, but Jesus himself leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. Let's turn now and look at the false prophets of verses 15 to 20. Jesus uses a number of different images in these verses, verses 15 to 20, to demonstrate the perils we face when we enter uh, the narrow gate by believing in him. He uses the term false prophets. He talks about trees. He talks about wolves in sheep, sheep's clothing. He talks about fruit. There are all kinds of images that he uses here. And so he warns in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Like a good shepherd, Jesus is telling us of the perils we will face along the way. And his greatest concern is to warn against the false prophets who will try to seduce us from the path. Try to seduce us away from following him. Now there are many obvious false prophets that most any Christian can spot. Most of us know uh, the, the big ones, <laughs> the obvious false prophets. But Jesus is concerned about those who look like they belong to Christ. He's concerned about those who have insinuated themselves into the church, who have, who have come in in an insidious manner, and who look the part. They wear the clothes. But they're not truly a follower of Christ. And they're, in truth, leading people astray. Now, one uh, obvious example is Mormonism, which tries to present itself as just another Christian denomination. Its desire is to make you think that they are a part of the church. In fact, they want you to believe that they are the true church of Jesus Christ, and that every other church, every other denomination is a corruption of the true church. And Mormons use Christian terminology. They use terms like grace and atonement. But when you speak to them, you recognize that they are using these terms in very different ways than true Christian Christianity uses these terms. But more dangerous are the false prophets who have made it into the church, who have made it inside what we consider to be uh, the church of Christ. These are those who are, who are there, but they're preaching a different gospel. They are ravenous wolves whose true desire is to tear the church apart. 
And Jesus says in verses 16 to 20 that true prophets as well as false ones can be identified by their fruit. This is how you know whether they are true or false. You have to look at their fruit. The fruit of a person's heart is the evidence of what he truly believes. This is true for all believers, isn't it? When we are obedient to all that God has commanded, we are giving evidence of that faith that we have in Jesus Christ. We are bearing good fruit. Disobedience, especially willful and repetitive disobedience, brings discredit to our profession of faith. It is evidence that sin still remains in our hearts. And it may also be evidence that a person does not truly believe. As Jesus says in verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. Even if you cannot recognize a tree by its bark or by its leaves, you can be certain of the kind of tree uh, by the fruit that it bears. When it, when it is in season and is bearing fruit, there is no doubt about what it is. If it has acorns, you know that it's an oak tree. If it has apples, you know it's an apple tree. A healthy tree, Jesus says in verse 18, cannot bear bad fruit. And an unhealthy tree cannot bear good fruit. A tree will bear the type of fruit that is in its nature. But people are still guilty, they're still capable rather, of deception. And the Pharisees were very good at putting on a show of works. They are very good at letting people think that they were true followers of, of, of the Lord. But the primary fruit of a prophet is what? What do you look for when a person who says that he speaks on behalf of the Lord? What do you look for? What do you, what do you examine? You examine his words. That is the primary fruit of a prophet, of a preacher. You examine his words. What does he say? The best way to determine a false prophet from a true one is to hold what he says up to the word of God. And this is exactly what the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17. When Paul and Silas went uh, to Berea to preach, there were many of them who searched the scriptures. They, they searched, they listened to what Paul and Silas had to say. They compared it with their Bibles, their, the word of God. To see if it was true. And many of them believed based on this comparison. But in order to determine whether a prophet is true or false, to be like the Bereans, you must know your Bibles. You must know Scripture. You must be aware of what it teaches. We need to study it. We need to have it stored in our hearts. There are times where you will hear things and you don't have a copy of Scripture present with you. You need to know. You need to know that people are quoting Scripture correctly, but you also need to know that they're handling it correctly, that their interpretation is proper. We need to follow along with the word when it is preached. A false prophet will invariably interpret scripture in a way that deviates from what is held by the church as orthodox. A false prophet will invariably stray. Now that is not to say that someone who is a true preacher, someone who is a true believer can't say something from the pulpit that is false, that is a mistake. But what it is, if it's... If it's systemic, if it is regular, if you're constantly hearing things that just do not fit with your understanding as it has been handed down, the interpretation of Scripture, as it been handed down through the centuries, then there is a problem. A false prophet will always eventually include in his teaching, in his interpretation, some form 
of works righteousness, some form of, of righteousness that is, that is given to us based on our works. But Jesus says in verse 19 that every tree that does not bear good fruit, every tree, every false prophet who proves that he is false will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is the future for those who do not truly believe. But there is a way that we can escape this. There is a way even for those who are false in what they teach to escape. And that is to enter through the narrow gate. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To repent of sins. You see, we enter uh, through the wide gate simply by being born into the world. We are by nature sinful creatures. The path that follows is an easy one. We are by nature sinful because we fell when Adam sinned. And so it's easy to follow this path to destruction. But Jesus is the narrow gate. His path is difficult. To follow him means that you are going to struggle. You're going to go against the flow of humanity. You're going to have to fight against what they are constantly teaching you. You will be targeted. You will struggle with sin in a way that you've never struggled with it before. And yet the path that you are on as a believer in Christ leads you to eternal life. Destruction or eternal life. These are the two options that we have as human beings. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sins, which is what Jesus commands all people everywhere to do, you will see at the end of your journey that it has been worth every step along the way. You will see that your struggles, that your fight against sin, that even the ridicule or the persecution that you have faced as a believer in Jesus Christ, they've all been worth it. And why is that? Because at the end of your life, you will finally see the great shepherd. You will finally see your Savior face to face. You will behold him as he truly is. And you will be able to look back on your life and see how he carefully led you through the path, down the path, along the path, you will be able to see how he protected you and how he shepherded you from evil. When we get to that point, we will know that we did not get there on our own strength, but that Jesus Christ carried us all the way by his grace, unmerited by us. This is the narrow gate. This is the difficult path. But this is the way that Jesus Christ has laid it out for us by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And in this, we can rejoice. Let us come before the Lord. Gracious God, we ask that you would plant our feet firmly on the path of righteousness.